Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So let's start tonight with a bunch of stories and updates from various uh, things that have to do with space and astronomy. So first, we are going to revisit one of my sort of favorite things that is current in astronomy uh, in the solar system, which is the possibility of a quote-unquote planet nine. And so as I always like to remind people before I start talking about this too much, Uh, Planet Nine is not linked to any of those conspiracy theories uh, that came out in 2015 or 2000 or anything like that. Uh, It's not some sort of rogue planet that is coming to uh, change the way that we see the world or anything silly like that. Um, It has nothing to do with the planet Nibiru, uh, which is another favorite topic of conspiracy uh, people. Instead, it is an actually hypothesized object uh, that serious astronomers actually talk about. And so it is hypothesized to be a massive object beyond the Kuiper belt, uh, but still very much in orbit around the sun. Now, the reason we think there should be something out there is because of the eccentric orbit of several Kuiper belt objects, or KBOs. And so a new paper actually takes the hunt in a sort of a more whimsical direction. Uh, And so not necessarily whimsical, but definitely unusual direction. (laughs) And so the paper is a serious exploration of astronomical and physical science. um, But it's not meant necessarily to be a serious suggestion for the origin of planet nine. The paper suggests that the massive object could be a very small black hole. By simply focusing on the concept of a planet, you restrict the experimental search that you're undertaking, James Unwin, one of the study's authors and an assistant professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago, remarked. Once you start thinking about more exotic objects, like primordial black holes, you think in a different way. We advocate that rather than just looking for it in visible light, maybe look for it in gamma rays or cosmic rays. Now, several KBOs have orbits that suggest something with a mass between 5 and 15 times that of Earth that should be orbiting in the outer reaches of the solar system. In addition, there are also short warps to incoming starlight that may also be affected by a rogue planet or a tiny black hole. And so these tiny black holes are not necessarily the kinds of black holes that you normally think about. They are primordial black holes. And so those would have been formed in the early universe rather than as the super dense remnants of stars. Now, they therefore would have been much less massive, having been formed from extra density 
extra density areas left over in the early expanding universe. And so Unwin and his collaborator, Jakob Schultz, a junior researcher, research fellow at the Institute for Particle Physical Physics Phenomenology at Durham University, hypothesized that a primordial black hole may have been traveling past the solar system and become trapped by the sun's gravity well. Now, even such a small black hole would be able to last for a very, very long time. And so some might might ask about the effects of Hawking radiation, which does then it does deplete slowly the uh, mass of a black hole, but the effects are so small that even a tiny black hole would be able to survive for a very, very long time. If it were a black hole, there would be no point in looking for it using traditional planet hunting methods. A five Earth mass black hole would actually be able to be held in your hands. Of course, you'd never want to do that or be able to do that, uh, but the visual is apt nonetheless. A 10 Earth mass black hole would be around the size of a bowling ball. And so in order to detect such a black hole, you would need a telescope that would search for something most gamma ray detectors aren't currently looking for, a source of high energy radiation moving quickly across the sky. And what do other Planet Nine hunters think of this hypothesis? Constantin Badigan, who has been one of the premier hunters, notes that Planet Nine could be a five Earth mass hamburger, and the math would still work out right. Of course, a hamburger has a comparable albedo. Uh, that's how much light that it would reflect to a planet, but a black hole the size of your wallet is a bit harder to find. So if the search for a planet strikes out, uh, we may may indeed want to open up to the possibility of tiny black holes. Uh, probably not, but... <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, I just think it's really fun, though, um, to think about that kind of a possibility. I think it is important to actually sort of strike out and think about things differently. Okay, and so now we have a small update on the comet 2i Borisov. And so, again, this is the second ever detected extrasolar object. And so in a paper submitted to Astrophysical Journal Letters, a team from the 4.2 meter William Herschel telescope in Spain's Canary Islands note that gases evaporating from the comet contain cyanogen gas or cyanogen gas. They found a clear spike in the ultraviolet part of the spectrum that corresponds to the emitted, emitting of cyanogen gas. Now, this is actually a gas often given off by comets that have their origins within the solar system, but they're hoping that as the comet continues to head towards the sun, uh, they'll be able to find traces of even more exotic elements. But if they don't, it shows that the um, comet was formed in a place that is relatively uh, homogeneous to uh, or homogeneous uh, to our solar system, so it's not terribly different. Uh, it has the kind same kind of makeup, which is not altogether uh, impossible, since a lot of what is in our local solar system is probably 
fairly common in other parts of the uh, universe. Okay, so in an let's move on to another update. Like I said, there was a whole bunch of updates uh, this week on all sorts of things that we've talked about that happen to do with space. And so now we are going to have an update on the Hayabusa 2. And so uh, the Hayabusa 2 is the Japanese um, space probe that has been uh, visiting the asteroid Ryugu. And so its final mission was to launch the Minerva II-2 probe, which it did on Thursday, yesterday. And so the probe is now on its way to the asteroid. Now, it will actually take a few days to reach the surface, but that's actually part of the mission uh, to test the weak gravitational pull of Ryugu and give engineers a better sense of how to navigate a tiny craft towards an object with such low gravity. And so uh, the Minerva, it's not really a, um, they call it a rover or a lander, but it's just kind of, it's almost kind of like a uh, coffee can sized um, object that is apparently able to hop, but is basically just a um, a probe, like I noted, rather than a lander or anything like that. And so it will take a few days to reach the surface again. Um, and so it, the mission should end on the 8th, when the Hayabusa 2 will start on its way back to Earth. And hopefully when it gets here, it will be able to launch the cube or the, um, the probe that actually has a canister in it with bits from the uh, Ryugu asteroid. And that would be very cool. Next up on space, <laughs> uh, NASA uh, has a new plan to try to salvage the Stuck Insight heat probe. And so we've talked about that several times before. The Mars lander uh, has been doing great work and is pretty happy, except for one really uh, unfortunate thing, which is that the heat probe, one of its major science um, missions, it hit a snag very quickly after having tried to deploy and basically got stuck. And so they've been trying for a really long time to figure out new ways to uh, try and be able to actually salvage that mission and get the heat probe down far enough for the primary science mission to be able to happen. And so what they're planning on doing now is using the lander's robotic arm to help with hammering the probe farther into the Martian soil. They hope that the probe did not hit a rock, but rather just a denser than expected patch of soil. And so basically what they want to do is they want to kind of pin the probe to the side of the hole in order to give the... Um, to give the hammering more of a uh, force downward because otherwise it's just kind of jiggling around in the hole and nothing's happening. It doesn't have any purchase in order to be able to really go down further. It just keeps sort of bouncing off of this harder uh, soil. And so if that doesn't work, uh, the next thing to try is that there is actually a little scoop 
on the robotic arm. And so if this doesn't work, if the pin pin maneuver doesn't work, then there's the potential to actually use the robotic arm more as kind of a backhoe and actually to be able to put um, sand or soil into the uh, hole in order to have the probe have better purchase so that it can then again try and once again drill down uh, far enough in order to get to a place where it can do that um, primary science. And so all is not lost. Uh, and obviously the lander is still doing amazing work, even if the heat probe unfortunately never manages to actually get there. Um, there is still a lot of great work being done by the uh, InSight lander. Okay, and so one more story, I think, maybe a couple more. Uh, and so this is kind of an update. Uh, astronomers announced recently that a survey of stars have found 50 stars that show a similar erratic dimming pattern to that seen in KIC 8462852 or Tabby's star. And we talked about another um, hypothesis for what might be happening with Tabby's star the other day. Uh, but this is about stars that are more similar to Tabby's star. And so astronomer and physicist Edward Schmidt at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, dived into data collected between April of 1999 and March of 2000 by the Northern Sky Variable Survey to look for other stars that might resemble Tabby Star. Um, and again, it's called Tabby Star because it is named after the astronomer um, Tabitha um, Boilijan, I believe. Uh, I'm taking that off the top of my head, so I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it. Um, so basically what he wanted to find out is if there were more stars out there like Tabby's star, then he might be able to find some commonality, which might help to explain the mystery. Pretty straightforward reasoning. And so initially he found 21 stars with regular variability that was not readily explicable. He then downloaded light curves, light curve data from the All Sky Automated Survey for Supernova and compared them against Tabby's star. In my candidates, I can see no periodicity and the depths of the dips vary considerably. So those are like KIC 8462852, Schmidt noted. Now, randomness is the key to connecting these stars. Some stars have a single history of dimming, or dim erratically, but always at around the same amount. And so you need to have both of those be erratic in order to really match up with Tabby's star. These stars don't have a similarity in either length or the amount of dipping, so they do line up. And so um, he further he further divided them into two kinds. And so there are the slow dippers, and that is the fifteen that are most like Tabby Star. And he labeled the other six as rapid dippers. And so those have similar dips, but m much more frequently. And so it's not 
clear yet why there would be this kind of spectrum in variability. The argument for these stars exhibiting the same phenomena as KIC 8462852 is their location in the same area of the temperature luminosity diagram. This makes it seem likely they are the same. And so uh, temperature luminosity diagrams, that's basically how you map stars is uh, how luminous they are kind of tells you how hot they are. And, um, and so they're in the sort of cluster of the same kinds of stars. Um, and of course, that leaves a lot of questions still, even if we found more stars like uh, KIC, because it doesn't really tell us honestly anything. Um, yet, it just gives us more things to look at. And so some of the questions that still remain are, do the stars block specific wavelengths? Uh, are they also slowly fading in the way that Tabby Star did between 1890 and 19 and 1989, um, and a host of other things? Uh, and so it will definitely take more research to determine if these stars are truly analogous to Tabby Star. I think it is most likely that the dips are caused by transiting objects, but that doesn't necessarily explain the long-term dimming. The transiting objects are likely dust-based on the color changes during dips, are, are likely dust based on the color changes during dips, Schmidt noted. I think we are still a ways from explaining everything. And of course, dust would make sense because as we talked about um, a couple weeks ago, the idea, one of the ideas for why uh, Tabby's star has that issue is that the dust from a moon is being pulled out of the moon's um, atmosphere and actually being uh, pushed out in clouds out of the solar system by the sun itself. And so dust is definitely a likely culprit for the way that the uh, star is dimming and uh, dipping. Okay, so let's stay in space again. Uh, definitely have a lot of space stories tonight. Um, it's funny, they seem to come in waves. Uh, sometimes I struggle to find anything that isn't uh, space-based because there's just so much neat stuff happening in space. And it's, you know, it's kind of a flashy science, to be honest. Um, astronomy and things like that are very cool, and they definitely capture people's imaginations. So I, I do understand why this ends up happening. So NASA has an interesting, had an interesting announcement this week. They have reported that a new analysis of data reveals the presence of organic compounds within the plumes of liquid water that form geysers shooting water into space from below the icy crust of Saturn's moon Enceladus. Now, the compounds carry nitrogen and oxygen, and these are keys to producing amino acids, which in turn are the building blocks of proteins, which are the basis of all life on Earth and all life as we know it. Now, this isn't an entirely surprising result. Astronomers have long suspected that the waters below Enceladus's surface could hold such organic compounds. 
Such compounds have been detected coming from the moon before, but this is the first time they've been found specifically in water. Now, the findings published in the journal Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society suggests that there could be deep sea chemical reactions producing amino acids below the moon's surface. This work shows that Enceladus's ocean has reactive building blocks in abundance, and it's another green light in the investigation of the habitability of Enceladus, Frank Postberg, a co-author of the study, said in a press release. Analyzing the chemical composition of the plumes, researchers discovered several new organic compounds, which were once dissolved in the ocean water below the surface and then evaporated with surface water, condensed, and then froze to the moon's icy crust. The plumes are sampled The plumes were sampled by NASA's Cassini spacecraft as it flew near the moon back in 2008. Now, one of the most likely origins of life on Earth now involves hydrothermal vents rather than the warm little pool as it did in Darwin's day. On Earth, seawater mixes with magma to create hydrothermal vents that can have temperatures up to 700 degrees Fahrenheit. They gush forth hydrogen-rich water, which fuels chemical reactions that transform organic compounds into amino acids, which are then able to assemble into proteins, that crucial element needed for creating replicating life. And so this process allows for life to be created without the need for the sun's direct energy which is important for Enceladus, since we know that much of the sun's light is reflected off of the icy surface. And that's just what little light gets to Enceladus, because of course, it's much further away from the sun than we are uh, here on Earth. If the conditions are right, these molecules coming from the deep ocean of Enceladus could be on the same reaction pathway as we see here on Earth. Nozer Kawaja, who led the research team behind the latest discovery, said in a release, We don't yet know if amino acids are needed for life beyond Earth, but finding the molecules that form amino acids is an important piece of the puzzle. And again, earlier research found organic compounds, but they were not water-soluble, which is a key component for the ability of the compounds to become amino acids. Here we are finding smaller and soluble organic building blocks, potential precursors for amino acids and other ingredients required for life on Earth, John Hillier, another co-author of the study, said in a release. Now, data from the Cassini mission, which lasted for 13 years uh, and just recently finished up in the last couple of years when the uh, space probe was actually uh, purposefully crashed into Saturn in order to keep it from um, potentially contaminating any of the moons. Uh, It will take decades to sort through that data. And so Titan, another moon of Saturn, is also considered a target for potential life. And that's actually going to be the moon that will host the Dragonfly mission in 2026. 
And so NASA plans to send a nuclear-powered helicopter uh, to that moon. And so hopefully we will find out some really cool things from that mission. Um, Titan and Enceladus are both really fascinating uh, places and both are very potentially uh, interesting and might actually harbor life. Um, and so of course, not only might there be life out there on other planets or moons, uh, but some of it is pretty wild right here on earth. And so we're going to come back after the break and talk about some of the weird life that lives here on earth. Um, but first a short aside, now, I do suspect that one or more moons in the solar system might harbor bacterial life, but I highly doubt any intelligent life will be found anytime soon anywhere else in the universe. I just always like to clarify my position when I talk about these things. Uh, my reasoning for that is that the distances are just so vast between potentially habitable worlds that many civilizations will probably rise and fall, never having been aware of any others. Now, that's not the sunny, happy idea of, you know, sweet, uh, innocent people learning about uh, these benevolent, wonderful uh, aliens who want to help us and make us, you know, make our world a better place. Um, but it's not as bleak as the people who think that uh, if aliens ever come here, they'll just annihilate us <laughs> outright. Um, I always like to joke that if aliens did come here, they would ignore us and talk to the ants because the ants are uh, by far the dominant species on the earth, uh, not mere humans. But um, yeah, I think that as much as it would be fascinating and really just interesting to know uh there would be so many scientific questions to be answered if we found out that there was life somewhere else on earth um you know is that life based on the same sorts of uh proteins and amino acids and things like that that are uh, essential to life on earth are they based on something other than carbon? Like there would be a million billion questions. It would be amazing, but I just don't see it. Um, and I might be proved wrong, but we'll have to see. Okay, so we're going to take a break and do some PSAs and some show promos. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about uh, a favorite of not only this program, but the internet at large. We're going to talk about tardigrades. Uh so do stay tuned for that coming up in just a few moments. What could be more amazing than peak foliage season in Connecticut? Dropping a music festival right in the middle of it. The Black Bear Americana Music Festival is coming to the Goshen Fairgrounds October 11th, 12th, and 13th. Come for the day or camp out for the weekend. There's more than 40 bands on four stages. Amazing food, crafts, dancing, workshops, jam tents, and nationally touring acts that will simply blow your mind. Come to BlackBearMusicFest.com for more info. That's BlackBearMusicFest.com. Sassy! Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in the 
this cave. Save us, Sassy! <laughs> you will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? <laughs> Over five million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? <laughs> Help us, Sassy! <laughs> Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Thirsty in San Diego asks, Hey, Mr. Green, should I buy my beer in bottles or in cans? Well, Thirsty, I'm grateful someone finally went beyond the paper versus plastic quandary to a new meaningful dilemma. As with that old standby, it's a tough call. I could suggest that you purchase your suds in returnable kegs. This might be frowned upon by those who look to Mr. Green as an apostle of moderation. Thanks to kegs, Mr. Green would personally opt for bottles because they usually contain better varieties of beer and because manufacturing glass creates less pollution and requires less energy than making aluminum. Since glass is a much heavier material, however, the additional fuel used to ship bottles outweighs some of the benefits of making them. Aluminum also has a leg up on the recycling end. About 45% of beer and soda cans get recycled as opposed to 20% of glass containers. Both percentages could be greatly improved if more states implemented bottle deposit laws, a fine, practical idea idea that the beverage industries are doing their damnedest to fight. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the, it's the end of the world as we know it. It's the, it's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. Hey, it's D.O. from the Enviro Show, which is the Valley's only local radio show devoted solely to environmental issues right here on WXOJLP Valley Free Radio. That's right, and I'm Glenn reminding you that we're at 103.3 FM and streaming live at valleyfreeradio.org every Tuesday from 6 to 7 p.m. And not so live on Thursdays at 2. And since it's the end of the world as we know it, why not spend your last hour with us? Exactly. We will help you cope with the end of the world without resorting to drugs or Facebook, even though we are on Facebook. And online at enviroshow.wordpress.org. Remember, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. and Thursdays at 2 p.m. Got it? Yes! Forbes Library offers free access to computers, and now they are equipped with tools to make them easier to use if you are blind or have low vision. When you come into Forbes Library, you will find computers with JAWS screen reading and magnification software installed. Trained library staff are available to get you started. These services were brought to you with federal funds provided by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and administered by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners. Call 413-587-1012 to find out more. Okay, you are listening to to WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton, Massachusetts, and this is Evidence-Based Radio, and we are going to move on and talk about tardigrades, which are amazing and wonderful, and 
yeah, pretty much they're just amazing and wonderful. And so with such names as the water bear or the moss piglet, what's not to love? (laughs) Uh, And not only are they just really cute looking, uh, as far as I'm concerned, when you see pictures of them, um, especially artist renderings, uh, they are also kind of super powered. And they actually might now be on the moon, our moon. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Uh, There is a uh, statistically insignificant yet non-zero chance uh, that there are tardigrades on the moon at this very minute. When the Israeli spacecraft Bereshit crashed into the lunar surface back in April, at least we assume it crashed, uh, it lost contact and it's not been found since, uh, it was carrying a cargo of dehydrated tardigrades. Now, weirdly enough, apparently this was kind of the point. Uh, This I did not know until recently. Uh, The Bereshit mission was actually a privately funded one with the express mission of transferring living DNA to the moon and eventually using the moon as a repository from which the Earth could be repopulated following a disaster of, well, biblical proportions. Now, this sounds more like a bad sci-fi movie uh, and kind of makes me glad that they weren't successful. Um, Yeah, very weird. But getting back to the tardigrades, if they did survive the crash, they will probably survive for some time on the surface of the moon. However, it's important to note that they were dehydrated. In their dehydrated state, tardigrades are practically indestructible. They can survive extreme temperatures and pressures. They can survive the vacuum of space. They can survive exposure to radiation. Um, And so in order to do this, they go into a state called anhydrobiosis. And so that is when they basically roll into a ball and enter a spore-like state that slows down their metabolism by around 100-fold. And this allows them to live for potentially over a hundred years. But they can't sustain that hibernation state indefinitely. In order to actually live, they need water. And the moon has precious little of that and none of it liquid. So how do they create this amazing feat of survival? Well, that spore-like state seems seemingly turns them into a kind of organic glass. And it just happens to come with a sort of built-in radiation shield. And so we talked about this back in 2016, but new research into this mechanism has further explored this unique feature. In the first study, researchers including Takuma Hashimoto from the University of Tokyo found that a single gene encodes for a protein unique to tardigrades, which was dubbed DSUP for damage suppressor. However, at the time, the mechanism for how this protein was able to do this was unknown. Now, researchers at the University of California, San Diego, think that they know how this happens. 
Writing in the journal eLife, they analyzed DSUP to discern its molecular functions. We now have a molecular explanation for how DSUP protects cells from X-ray irradiation, said molecular biologist James Kananaga. We see that it has two parts, one piece that binds to chromatin and the rest of it forming a kind of cloud that protects the DNA from hydroxyl radicals. Now, hydroxyl radicals are what are actually generated in cells by ionizing radiation. That's the kind that can actually hurt you uh, and hurt the cells themselves and the DNA in your cells, uh, as opposed to non-ionizing radiation, which is generally considered harmless to living cells. Um, so again, when people talk about radiation and whether or not it might be killing you, um, it's important to ask them, is this non-ionizing radiation or ionizing radiation? Um, nuclear blasts send out ionizing radiation. Your cell phone uses non-ionizing radiation, so it is not giving you brain cancer. Um, <laughs> and so uh, these particles are also produced when the wet, mossy areas in which tardigrades spend their days uh, happily swimming around become dry, which is what triggers them to enter anhydrobiosis. Now, the researchers believe, as did their fellows back in 2016, that their toleration for radiation is actually a side benefit of their adaptation to surviving in dry conditions. But one of the cool things is that since the mechanism is so simple, it might be adapted for use in organisms other than tardigrades. In theory, it seems possible that the optimized version of DSUP could be designed for the protection of DNA in many different types of cells, said Kadanaga. DSUP might thus be used in a range of applications such as cell-based therapies and diagnostic kits in which increased cell survival is beneficial. So that is very cool. And again, tardigrades are just pretty much the best. So let's actually backtrack for a minute uh, to the formation of life on earth itself. So uh, nowadays we have all these really cool things, including these tiny little tardigrades that uh, everyone has fallen in love with. But once very far, very far and very long ago, uh, the earth basically didn't have anything. And then it did. It had cyanobacteria. So we're going to talk about cyanobacteria for a second. And so researchers now believe that they can positively identify fossil remains found in the 1980s in the Australian desert as 3.5 billion, with a B, year old signs of life. And so stromatolites found in the Dresser Formation fossil site of the Pilbara region have finally been shown to have traces of organic matter. This is an exciting discovery. For the first time, we're able to show the world that these stromatolites are definitive evidence for the earliest life on Earth, said geologist Raphael Baumgartner of the University of New South Wales in Australia. Now, stromatolites are, uh, they're basically, they look like, bumpy columns, um, sort of pillow-shaped, bumpy 
uh, outcroppings in um, stone. And they basically form when cyanobacteria colonies come together and they form biofilms. And then basically what happens is that bits of sand and gravel would kind of adhere to those biofilms. And then over time, they solidify. And um, it's a little bit like coral, only not as pretty. <laughs> and so, uh, but it grows much the same way over um, you know, hundreds and thousands of years, the cyanobacteria colonies continue to flourish and you get these kind of bumpy, pillowy formations that are then, um, in some places, they are um, incorporated into other rock formations and um, things like that. And so they have long been considered to be the earliest extant fossils of life on Earth. There was obviously things earlier than that, but they didn't leave fossils. Um, and so we can't really know anything beyond this because it just didn't fossilize. And there are actually still microbes living today that form stromatolites, uh, especially in areas of hypersaline lakes and lagoons. Um, so there are places like Sharks Bay in Australia. Um, that's a really famous one. Um, there's also uh, stromatolites that are formed in Chile and Brazil and some other places. Um, and so it's definitely something that we can still sort of study in real time, but we know that in uh, ancient times, it was the cyanobacteria. And actually, they're cyanobacteria because uh, this is actually life before oxygen. And uh, so the cyanobacteria are actually killed off largely uh, when the switch to oxygen happens, and that's later on in geological time. Um, and so these are non-oxygen-based. They are um, cyanobacteria. Uh, they are chemical-based um, microorganisms. Um, and so the structures are obviously have a particular kind of look to them, but unfortunately, they are in the end, at this point, rock. Uh, and so some formations, some structures will look very much like ancient stromatolites, but it turns out they're just rock. Um, and so this happened with a sample uh, claimed to be 3.7 billion years old in Greenland uh, a couple years ago. So it is quite exciting to have confirmation from this site of organic remains. And so the researchers looked at previously drilled core samples from deep underground, which would not have been affected by weather. They found samples with excellent preservation. And so they analyzed the samples using thin slices, which were examined with a variety of techniques, including uh, scanning electron microscopy, scanning transmission electron microscopy, energy dispersive x-ray spectroscopy, and Raman uh, spectroscopy, nanoscale secondary ion mass spectrometry, and stable carbon isotope analysis. <laughs> and so the reason for so many tests is to truly show that these samples are indeed organic life from the very beginning of life's story here on Earth. So if you had one kind of uh, spectroscopy or uh, microscopy say, oh yes, this is totally life, but all the others didn't, 
then you would be suspect. But since all of them pointed to this actually being organic uh, compounds, then that's a much more robust test. And so the stromatolites are mainly composed of the mineral pyrite, and they're filled with nanoscopic pores. And so in the pyrite are inclusions of nitrogen-bearing organic materials, as well as strands and filaments of organic material, which the researchers believe are the remnants of biofilms formed by the colonies of cyanobacteria. The organic matter that we found preserved within pyrite of the stromatolites is exciting. We're looking at exceptionally preserved coherent filaments and strands that are typically remains of, of microbiome of microbial biofilms, Baumgartner said. I was pretty surprised. We never expected to find this level of evidence before I started this project. And since these microbes were active at the same time uh, that we believe Mars might have been hospitable to life, they've actually been heavily studied by NASA. Understanding where life could have emerged is really important in order to understand our ancestry, Baumgartner said. And from there, it could help us understand where else life could have occurred, for example, where it was kickstarted on other planets. And so, of course, there is still that uh, nagging uh, question of whether or not there is uh, life on other planets that we've been talking about earlier tonight. And uh, there was just a little aside, um, someone wrote a, um, a think piece uh, on whether or not it would really be a big deal if we found uh, the remains of microbial life on Mars. And uh, I think that it would be really cool. And um, a lot of great science could come of that. Um, but I don't know, I'm a little bit of two minds about that. I think that it could upset a lot of people who have a very deep personal belief that, um, you know, life on earth is special and unique. Um, I'm not one of those people. So it's hard for me to put myself in that, in that frame of mind, um, to see how finding signs of life on another planet would affect me. Um, I just think it would be really cool. Um, this person argued that it would, you know, basically people would just go about their lives like everyone, like it was another day. Um, and I think that for a lot of people that is very true, but, um, I think it is something to think about is would it really be, um, something that would deeply affect a certain segment of the population? And again, I can't answer that. Um, but it was a really interesting sort of think piece to think about that, um, to kind of contemplate what would be the repercussions if we were to actually find signs of life somewhere other than on earth. Okay, so let's move on now. We are going to uh, leave those things behind us, uh, though we are going to stay sort of in biology. Well, no, we are going to stay in biology, just a different kind. And so I want to talk about a mystery that has puzzled scientists for the last 20 years. An outbreak of a fungal infection, which began killing people in the U.S. and Canada between 1999 and 2011. The infections were caused by a yeast-like fungus called Cryptococcus gatii. It's generally found in the soil, particularly near trees. 
but its dormant airborne spores can be inhaled by living creatures where they start to grow again. They move from the lungs into the nervous system and ultimately sometimes into the brain. Now, most people who are exposed never become sick, and it can't be spread person to person. But when it does sicken an animal or person, it can be deadly and can sicken either even otherwise healthy people. It's actually one of the more deadly fungal infections that affect people worldwide. From case files, its mortality rate can be as high as 33%. Now, usually it's found in tropical and subtropical environments like Australia and Papua New Guinea. And so when the outbreak began in the Pacific Northwest, fueled by the specific subtype usually found in these more tropical lands, it puzzled researchers, obviously. Um, how did it get there? And so the fungus has since established itself in the area of the Pacific Northwest and all the way down into California and has sickened hundreds of animals and people. Now, the researcher's first hypothesis was that ships from South America carried the fungus with them through the Panama Canal and into waters off the Pacific Northwest as early as 1914, shortly after the canal opened. Now, this would fit the facts that all of the sea gadii found in the U.S. and Canada is between 66 and 88 years old. Now, uh, Fungi usually reproduce through cloning, uh, thus making it easier for researchers to trace their history. And so now that they've done more research and they believe that they now know how the uh, fungi or fungi, I don't know which one's right, ultimately, uh, migrated from the sea onto the land in order to begin infecting animals and humans. They believe that the fungus was washed up on the shores of the Pacific Northwest during the 1964 Great Alaskan Earthquake. Measuring 9.2 on the Richter scale, this was the largest earthquake to occur in the Northern Hemisphere and the second largest ever to be recorded. The earthquake killed over 100 people, destroyed towns, and set off a chain reaction of tsunamis, which swelled throughout the Pacific Northwest and as far as Japan. This one event, like no other in recent history, caused a massive push of ocean water into the coastal forests of the Pacific Northwest, the, author, the authors wrote. Such an event may have caused a simultaneous forest sea gadii exposure up and down the regional coasts, including those of Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada, British Columbia, Canada, Washington, and Oregon. Now, the case is mostly conjecture, obviously. Uh, there's currently no way to tell if this is the exact chain of events that occurred to create the current situation. However, the strain of C. gadii that are found in the Pacific Northwest, they have found can all be traced back to a single seeding event decades before the beginning of outbreaks. And investigations found larger quantities of the fungus present in land closer to sea level, which would again lend weight to the idea that the fungus arrived via the ocean. And at least one patient from Seattle was sickened by C. gadii decades earlier, in 1971. But this is importantly, before, uh, sorry, after the tsunami. 
perhaps most importantly, we haven't found data that would discount or disagree with the hypothesis. Lead author David Engelthaler, co-director of the Pathogen and Microbiome Division at the Translational Genomics Research Institute in Arizona, uh, noted. Second, there is no good alternate hypothesis that fits all the data. Now, the authors note that other examples of infection outbreaks have been linked to national to natural disasters. Uh, one such incident was an outbreak of uh, flesh-eating bacteria, uh, which struck Joplin, Missouri, uh, after that uh, incredible tornado back in 2011. And so they suggest that these may be black swan events. Uh, and so these are events that are caused by an unforeseeable mix of circumstances uh, and were first described by the economist and philosopher Nassim Taleb. We hope to do more environmental analysis that is designed specifically to test the hypothesis. For example, do we find great presence of the fungus in the soil and trees within the known tsunami run-up region, as opposed to locales the tsunami water didn't reach, uh, he asked. And of course, there is still the question of timing. Why did it take decades for an infection outbreak to occur? And equally important, if the fungi did survive for decades in the ocean, could it be lurking off the coast of another area that could become infected if the tide is right? The researchers are collecting water samples from around the world in order to look for traces of the fungus that might be waiting uh, for their moment. And so, yeah, very weird and uh, something I hadn't heard about before. Okay, so we are almost out of time, but I did want to note that we got lucky and uh, we did not lose our status as a country in which measles has been eradicated uh, this year, but only by the skin of our teeth. And so once again, uh, if you've listened to this show before, you know my position, which is uh, vaccinations are one of the single best things that have ever been created by any human ever. And um, to not get vaccines that are readily available is um, just wrong, just wrong. <laughs> um, and you endanger the lives of your children, of people around you, and um, there's absolutely no reason to reject vaccines and to get vaccinated for diseases like measles, uh, which, again, I would like to remind people still kills thousands of people in the world every year. All right. So that's all the time I have for tonight. Uh, I will be back next week. Have a good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.